You are listening to an audio resource produced by Faith Presbyterian Church in Anchorage, Alaska. If you would like to learn more about the life and ministry of Faith Presbyterian, you can do so by visiting us online at faithanchorage.org. Good morning to you again. Thank you for being here this morning. Uh, Welcome to uh, Faith Presbyterian Church. If you haven't gathered already, I'm John. And if you're new here, uh, if you wouldn't mind uh, uh, letting me uh, have the honor of meeting you, uh, saying hi to you. I'm sorry if you've been here several times. I've not captured you yet. But welcome to uh, Faith Presbyterian Church. Uh, we are, so I'm preaching through Luke's gospel, and every now and again I take a bit of a, of a, of a recess, not the best word, but a, a, a break, a sabbatical. So be working my way through Luke. We're actually in Luke chapter 5 now. We'll probably be in Luke for a year and a half uh, more at least. Uh, but I take breaks every now and again, as I did with Jeremiah, to uh, address other subjects. And that's what we're uh, in right now. Uh, I've been uh, offering five sermons having to do with marriage, singleness, and servage, uh, servage, service. Uh, a, a biblical view of what it means to be married and what it means to be single as well. And this is the fifth sermon in that series, and what's odd about it is it's broken up. I mean, Linnell preached last week, and Andrew Allen preached the week before, so everyone's probably befuddled. But I think all the sermons online are organized now so that they all will uh, come together if they belong to the same sermon series. This morning, I'd like for you to open to Ephesians chapter 5. We've looked at this verse once before. I'll give you a quick synopsis of where we've been Uh, after we read the passage and pray. But first, let me address our little theologians. So everyone open Ephesians 5. Little theologians, uh, I want you to draw two pictures for me. Um, They're both going to be the same thing with just one difference. So I want you to draw a picture of Jesus and his church and just draw that picture twice. Okay, you got it? Draw a picture of Jesus and his church. Maybe the church is around. Actually, you have creative license, Jesus and and his church. But I want you to draw the picture twice, and I want there to be something different in the second drawing. And I, and I I want to be made to look hard at both of these drawings to discern the difference. You're drawing two pictures of Jesus and, and his church, his flock. Two pictures. But make, make one of those just slightly different. Uh, slightly different. Uh, there's a reason why I'm asking you to do that, and we'll talk about that later. But for now, uh, Ephesians 5 is where we want to be in our Bibles. If you don't have a Bible, we can get a Bible to you. Uh, Ephesians 5, beginning at verse 22, we'll read all the way to 33. Ephesians 5, 22 through 33. Let's pray first, and then we'll look at God's Word together. Our Father, we love you. We love that you speak to us. Uh, we love that you submit yourself to us in that way. You speak in a way that's understandable. It's, uh, by the Holy Spirit, the Bible is preserved over the ages so that we have it in our language and it can be before us and we can read it, pray over it, meditate over it. Uh, Father, would that we did that more often, but you certainly have done your part in making yourself known. Holy Spirit, would you be with us as we spend time in this word that we might understand it rightly? To the glory of our Savior. Amen. So again, Ephesians 5, uh, beginning at verse, uh, verse 22. <clears throat> Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. 
Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. <clears throat> Remember, this is the word of our Lord. Here's where we've been so far as we're looking at these passages that have to do with marriage and singleness. Uh, We began some seven weeks ago uh, looking in Genesis 1 and 2, and, and there I asked you to look for the framework of marriage that you might discern that marriage actually exists for the service of God that male and female would come together for the purpose of actually serving God, doing those things that He demands, walking in a way that brings glory to Him. So the framework of marriage where we began in Genesis 1 and 2 uh, tells us that marriage exists for the service of God. And I pushed back against notions that marriage exists simply for my own self-fulfillment. Marriage exists for the service of God. It is God who made man male and female. And then we went from there and we talked about what I think is the essence of the marriage. And we looked at this very passage, but we looked at this passage in terms of it speaking to Jesus' affection for his church. And this must have been six weeks ago when I said last time we looked at this passage that here lies the essence of marriage, that marriage serves God by proclaiming or broadcasting the gospel of his son. That's what a Christian marriage ought to do. A Christian marriage is evangelistic by definition. The presence of a married couple is the presence of an evangelistic message of Jesus and his care for the church as tied up in the gospel of grace. And so that's how we began the framework of marriage, Genesis 1 and 2, the essence of marriage to broadcast the gospel of grace, Ephesians 5. And then we took two uh, uh, short stops along the side, and we looked at 1 Corinthians 7, and we, t- uh, we discussed a singleness. And if there is any possibility that singleness can also bring glory to God, and indeed singleness can, according to Scripture, bring, bring glory to God. And there I said that whether married or single, God is worthy of our complete devotion, and a single person can show what that worthy devotion looks like just as a married person. And we went from there, and we looked at 1 Corinthians 6, and we uh, talked about physical affection, that uh, Jesus purchased a bride, and that this bride belongs to Him. Uh, Jesus owns this bride, and we looked at 1 Corinthians 6 that we might understand uh, what it then looks like for a husband and wife to have close, intimate relations with one another, indeed, becoming one flesh. And so we stopped to talk about the role of physical affection. So that's where we've been so far, and I'm going to submit to you that this Ephesians 5 reading is actually a bookend to Genesis 1 and 2. In this passage, Paul quotes Genesis 2.24, as does Jesus. 
And so there are a lot of ties between Ephesians 5 and Genesis chapter 2. And so it's good to, it's good to end here in this passage. But here, I'm going to look at the passage in a slightly different way. I focused more on uh, Jesus and the church uh, seven weeks ago, or six weeks ago. And I want to talk about the roles that Paul finds in earthly marriage. He's looking at married couples, and he says there are certain roles that husbands and wives follow that this marriage might do as what, as what God has intended marriage to do, that is to proclaim the gospel of his son. Now, when we talk about these roles, I want us to know that everyone in life, every, every human being has a role to play. In fact, all creatures have a role to play. And it's the simple proof of that is simply this, that there is only one creator. If there is any individual at all who may not have a role to play, it's going to be that one unitary creator. That's the only one. But everything comes from him. And because everything is created by him, everything has some role. There's, there's an intended purpose for everything that this creator has created. And so don't be fooled in thinking that you're the person who doesn't live by any, any role at all. You're the true unfettered man that can travel across the globe in complete freedom without any concern about who you might hurt or who might hurt you. You are the free man. And certainly don't think that you're the man that can uh, bury himself deep into the center of our state and hide from everyone else in the world and in that way be that unfettered man that has no role that he must satisfy. He can do as he sees fit. He's off the grid. That person doesn't exist. No one's off the grid. Scripture tells us that God is the only creator and that he's created all things and that his son was present at that creation, that his son is not created we are all creatures. Everyone has a role because no one in this room was able to create to themselves. But that's probably more the philosophical proof that all of us have a role. But if you just look deep into your own heart, you have expectations for people all around you. You just do. Someone should act a certain way, and you know what that certain way is. And when they don't act that way, you're offended by it or maybe even angry. And maybe you don't share all of those expectations, but make no mistake of it, all of us are just walking uh, expectation makers. We have expectations for every human transaction. They all need to go a certain way. I expect a person to do this. I don't expect a person to do that. There's something within our very fiber that creates this desire to have a role. And we have a desire for everyone else to have a role as well, usually the roles that we create for other people are roles that we create based on our own selfishness. But I want to offer a Christian message this morning, a message from God's Word. And I want to say to you that God teaches us that, there, that the most precious, uh, most active roles in our life, God actually has opinions about and He reveals those opinions in His Holy Word. This is what we mean when we say that Holy Scripture has the authority not only to tell us what to believe, but also the authority to give us our duties in life, to tell us how to behave. And God actually speaks about roles that we have within culture, just as an example. 
God tells us that we are not to live like pagans in such a way that we are conformed to pagan patterns. And God tells us that we're to submit to those who are in positions of authority over us. Uh, Our employers, we must submit to them and work for them unto God's glory. And, And that's trusting our Heavenly Father to know what's best for us. We have roles within the church, and we'll look at many of those roles this morning, and certainly there are roles within marriage. And God reveals these roles to us. He speaks into our lives, and it may be offensive. It may be offensive. It might be hard for us to be pushed around that way, especially those of us who think we truly are free spirits. God does speak into these role relationships. And let me tell you uh, what Scripture tells us about uh, a certain role relationship that's very important for us this morning. That's the role relationship within the Trinity. You see, Paul believes that Jesus loves his Father. Jesus loves his Heavenly Father. And Paul believes that Jesus obeys his Heavenly Father. He's taught that in Scripture And Paul believes that he obeys his heavenly father by loving the church for his father's sake. Jesus loves the church for the sake of his heavenly father. And Paul believes that Jesus willingly sets aside concern for himself to replace it with concern for the church. And Paul believes that Jesus is willing to do this to set aside himself even to the point of death. And Paul believes that Jesus in his death actually washes the church. But he doesn't wash her just for the sake of her being clean. He washes her that she might be presentable to his heavenly Father. And as you just listen to that, I'm going to restate that in a slightly different way later. There's this great role relationship that's within the Trinity between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we have to probe that Trinity if we're going to understand the roles within marriage. And that's what I hope for us to be able to do this morning. But let me tell you where I'm going before I get there. I want you to see this in the passage, that roles within marriage serve to make this marriage and to make the individuals in that marriage presentable to God. Roles within marriage actually serve to make the husband and the wife presentable to God. That's the purpose of the roles. They actually draw us deeper into that Trinitarian relationship between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Listen to this scripture from Romans 12. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Christian, that is your motto, that is your mission as a Christian, to present your body as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, to present your body in a way that that praises the mercy of God, and marriage serves as a way for that to happen. Marriage, in a Christian context, serves the husband, that the husband would be presentable to God, and the wife, that she would be presentable to God. Draw closer to Him, modeled on that great Trinitarian relationship between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So a lot to unpack here. I need to tell you, first of all, that this passage in Ephesians 5, where where Paul, he starts out talking to wives, then he's going to talk about husbands, and right in the middle he's talking about Jesus and the church. This is called an analogy. This is an analogy. 
And so what Paul is, is saying when he's talking about the church is he's offering Jesus and his love for the church as an analogy of what marriage is like. It's not identical. That's what's important here. Marriage is not identical to the church. Marriage doesn't replace the church. Notice if you look at the passage, um, all of these occasions where we see the word uh, as. Verse 22, uh, wives submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. 24, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives submit. Verse 25, husbands, uh, love your wives as Christ loved the church. 28, in the same way husbands should love their wives. So as and in the same way, they show up a lot. It's because these are analogous pictures, one of Jesus and the church and one of marriage. And theologians will often use the word analogy to describe, for instance, human knowledge. You know, I know stuff. Do you know stuff? I know stuff. But the stuff that you know, you don't know it in the same way that God knows stuff, because God knows stuff as well. But we would never say, I know stuff, God knows stuff. That's the same thing. It's not the same thing. Those are analogous relationships. God's knowledge is very different than your knowledge. And as much as you can say that you know stuff, your act of knowing something is analogous to God's knowing. God knows in a different way. You know, similarly, we can say, God's wise, I'm wise. Yeah, but, right, you know what I'm after, right? God's wise, I'm wise. God's good, I'm good. Sure, uh, you may be wise and good, but it's, it's analogous. It's not identical. It means it's similar. There are aspects of it that are very, very uh, similar, but they're not the same thing. And so when we look, for instance, at verse 22 and we read this, we, say, we read, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. What we're not saying is we're not saying that wives, you should submit to your husbands exactly as you would submit to Christ in fact, wives, you should not submit to your husbands in exactly the same way you submit to Christ. You are a follower of Christ. Christ has a special mastery over you. Christ has done things for you that your husband will never be able to do and ought not attempt to do. Your husband is not Jesus. You are not to worship your husband. Your husband is not perfect like Jesus. And so what I want you to hear, I know this is stating the obvious, but it's worth taking time to state. Analogy means similar, not exact. Christian wives are not, they're not uh, polytheists. I believe in Jesus, I believe in my husband. Easy enough. That's not what Paul is saying, it's an analogy. And similarly, verses 25 and 26, we read this, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. Now, <clears throat> husbands, you cannot sanctify your wife once and for all. Your blood will never cleanse her. And you cannot assert your word as if it were equal to Jesus' word. And you can't know all of her needs, although Jesus can and does know all of the needs of the church. And so if I would say to Christian wives that you're not polytheist, I would say to Christian husbands, you're not saviors. You're not saviors. You can't save that woman. You can preach a message to her, but that message belongs to someone else. It's another person's message, the only begotten son. And so husbands, you're not saviors. So they're similar, but they're not exact. And I'm saying it this way, and you may think this is very, very elemental. Don't take time for this. I'm saying it so that you're not confused to think that these are exact relationships. But how remarkable it is that Paul is not afraid of the confusion that might result. Just think about that. 
Right, right in between talking about wives and husbands, he inserts this picture of the church of Jesus. Paul actually is not afraid to make this risk of confusing everyone so that wives think they're polytheists and husbands think they can save their wives. Paul's not afraid of the risk. Why? Why? In your mind, what's the most hallowed relationship? Is it like, you know, a relationship between two sisters? There's no relationship like that. Is that what makes you teary-eyed? Is it the relationship between a father and a daughter? Is that the precious, uh, kind of this archetypical relationship? You know, there is nothing like that father-daughter relationship. I'm, I'm asking you, uh, what Facebook post makes you tear up most readily? Is it a relationship between friends? You know, friends are forever. Is, is, what is, I mean, what is, what is that hallowed relationship? Maybe it's maybe you got to get one of the humans out of the picture. It's like a boy and his dog. <laughs> That's the hallowed relationship. There's no way it can be a special relationship if it's two humans. But a boy and a dog, that works. Paul thinks that a very special relationship is a relationship between Jesus and his church. That's what is in the middle of this passage. It's Jesus and his warm affection for his bride that he makes presentable, that he might present her without spot to his heavenly Father. That's the special relationship to Paul. But maybe there's one more special. Maybe it's not simply the relationship between Jesus and his church. Maybe it's that relationship within the Trinity. I want you to look in Ephesians 5. Go, go north a little bit to Ephesians 5, 18 through 20. And what do you find there? This funny passage that begins with drunkenness. But listen to where the passage ends up. Because I think the most precious relationship to Paul is the relationship between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I think that's the most precious relationship. Uh, read with me Ephesians 5, 18 through 20. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. But be filled with the Holy Spirit. Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. That's a church passage right there. You see that? Singing, making melody to the Lord. And the passage goes on, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. I just want you to notice that the Trinity is present in that passage and it's very close to the church. You have this beautiful Trinitarian expression in Ephesians 5, 18 through 20. But mixed up in that is this body of people who, in the grace of Jesus Christ, who died following the will of the Father, imparting to the church the gift of the Holy Spirit. This body is singing hymns and spiritual songs. They're worshiping together. It's right in the midst of the Trinity. I think that's something worth noticing, worth taking home and talking about over lunch today. No, it's Father's Day, but talk about this. How beautiful that the Trinity should be so close to a worshiping body of Christian people. What a remarkable passage. And I think that passage sets us up to understand what Paul is talking about here. The quintessential relationship is a relationship between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit for all eternity. Because Paul knows that Jesus loves his bride, not because she deserves it. Do you hear that? He loves... Jesus loves his bride, but not because she deserves it, but because, she, because it is the will of the Father to love her and to rescue her from eternal death. This bride has been enfolded in the guilt and the punishment of the first Adam. This bride's in trouble. She needs help. 
And Jesus has been commanded by the Heavenly Father to rescue her with his own life. He suffered every day of his incarnated life, even to the point of death that he might be the second Adam to this woman who is enslaved to the first Adam. Jesus so loves his Father that he follows his Father's will to save his Father's people. How quickly in our minds, husbands, ought we to jump to Jesus' love for the church and his love for his heavenly Father. How quickly in our minds, Christian wives, ought you to jump to Jesus' love for his church and love for his heavenly Father. Not surprisingly, the analogy of the Trinity shows us how highly marriage is viewed in Holy Scripture. Marriage draws the husband and the wife into a deeper and closer understanding of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, a couple of things really fast. First of all, I just I want to talk about the roles, but I want to talk about the roles as they apply to a single person. Here's what I mean. There are roles in this passage, role of husband, role of wife, but the roles aren't just for husband and wife. I think single people need to hear that. I think the church at large needs to hear that. So there are roles, but these roles have a larger application in life of the church. That's the first thing I want to say. And the second thing that I want to say is that these roles belong together. They actually belong together. But first of all, look what, look what we find in 22, Ephesians 5, 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands. But in verse 22, the word submit isn't there. I'm serious. It's not there in the Greek. But instead, the word submit from verse 22 is actually picked up from verse 21. If you have your Bibles open before you, this will be real handy. In verse 22, the word submit doesn't actually show, show up. But it's picked up from verse 21 above. And verse 21 says that every Christian is to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Isn't that cool? That's so cool because Paul isn't like turning a chapter and saying, now I'm only going to talk to you married folks. He's actually talking to married people in the context of what all Christians are called to do. All Christians are called to submit. Something similar happens in verse 24. So look at, look at 24b. The second half of verse 24, wives should submit in everything to their husbands. But the word submit actually shows up early in the passage, both in Greek and English, uh, in verse uh, 24. And that word submit refers to the submission that the entire church has as the church submits to Christ Jesus. In verse 24, the word submit shows up only once. But it's more closely attached to the entire submission of the church. And I think that's beautiful because a wife is called to actually exemplify what every Christian is called to be and do. Her submission to her husband is actually broadcasting to the whole church what Christian submission should look like to all of us. That's worth noting. Be careful judging if a wife is being too submissive to her husband. I sincerely mean that if she's being too submissive to her husband. Because Paul, elsewhere in 1 Corinthians 6, he says, look, we're going we're gonna to err on the side of loving one another as a church. You Corinthians keep suing each other, 1 Corinthians 6. And Paul says, look, why wouldn't you just allow someone to defraud you? That's, that's a possible solution, right? You keep suing each other in the church. Why wouldn't you just let someone defraud you? That's a real possibility because Jesus will never leave you, never forsake you. He will be with you even if you are unjustly accused. Why not rather suffer wrong? That's what Paul says. 
And in Proverbs 19, 14, we read the same thing. It is to man's glory that he's not easily offended. Be careful for judging a wife because you think she's way too submissive to her husband because what she's doing is she's broadcasting qualities that ought to be experienced in the entire Christian church. Just be careful about that. A wife is called to exemplify what every Christian is called to do and be. And by that, I mean a wife is actually called to be like an optimized Christian. I'm thinking of the example of um, uh, like Kool-Aid, like concentrated drink. You know, I mean, you can mix it right and you can mix it wrong. And if you, one of the wrong ways of mixing it is it's like it's way too dark in color, right? Another wrong way, it's really pale. No one wants any of that. But you can make it super, super intense to where this is, this is just more than I can take. And in many ways, a wife is actually that optimized Christian, Christian in concentrated form. Did the illustration just get way too weird? She's actually called to live in a certain way that, sh- that should be uh, exemplified in the rest of the church as well. And the same thing is true for the husband. Verse 25, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Where else in Scripture is anyone told to love as Christ loves? Do you know the answer to that question? Love your wives as Christ loved the church. Husbands, but again, go north in this passage to Ephesians 5, 1 and 2. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. That's to all of us. That's not just to husbands. That's to all of us. And even as we think of a husband in verse 23 is serving as the head of the wife, uh, his headship is really more one of action than it is of just authority. We're to look to Jesus and not just his authority, but rather his actions, the things that he actually did. And the beginning of Ephesians 5 tells us that he loved us and he gave himself up to us as a, up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to his heavenly Father. Imitating God in this way is critical for every Christian. A husband is called to be an optimized Christian. In a similar way, a wife is called to be an optimized Christian. And so what's remarkable is that these marriage roles, they represent an intensification of our life in the church. Notice how submission to brothers and sisters and how imitating Christ are very similar. Both of these, in order for you to submit to your brother and sister in the church, in order for you to imitate Christ and your love for your brothers and sisters in the church, they're both going to, re- to involve a remarkable cost. And that cost is your own pride and selfishness. And husbands and wives are actually entering into an arena of life where they ought to Uh, more than anyone, as an example to everyone in the church, be setting aside pride and selfishness, that someone might look at that marriage and smell the aroma of Jesus Christ in it. Someone, I'm switching gears a little bit, someone uh, once described to me marriage as a dance. I don't don't dance. That's probably, that's stating the obvious, but there you go. Uh, I don't dance. But someone who dances says, said to me that, There's an interesting relationship between the one leading and the one following. Uh, They both have to do it well. Uh, No one one dancing partner can actually make the dance work well. It it really requires both of them. And when we think about these roles, I want to draw your attention to the fact that these roles are complementary. They fit together. 
A woman must selflessly submit to her husband, but a husband must selflessly suffer for his wife. And I think that's what Paul's after in verse 31. He says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Both Jesus and Paul quote this verse. I mean, imagine that God intended for Adam and Eve to be presentable to himself through a dance. Just think about that. God intended for Adam and Eve to be presentable to himself through a dance, through marriage. The woman, Eve, would submit to her husband, and then the, the, she would follow her husband, and she, uh, her husband would actually teach her God's will, and as a result of which she would respect her husband, even revere her husband. And then the man, Adam, he would sacrifice for his wife daily, working for her and then resting from that work, perhaps that he might teach his wife. He would sacrifice himself in order that he might guard the garden, keep the garden for his heavenly father. But he would sacrifice himself by placing her needs above his own. He sacrifices to God by trusting that God knows what he needs. God knows what Adam needs. And Adam would submit to that trust. And he would know that this woman standing before him, even if she might anger him, he knows that this is the woman that his heavenly father provided for him. He did not provide this woman for himself. God did. And so he treats her special. In fact, he treats her as if she is, she is his own body. And in fact, she is of his body. That God established this relationship between Adam and Eve that Adam and Eve might dance together and then be presented to him as a sanctified man and a sanctified woman. You see... I want to finish with this. I don't want us to think that, that marriage is supposed to recreate the life of Eden. In Matthew twenty two thirty, Jesus is very clear that there's no marriage in the new heavens and in the new earth. But what I want us to understand is that you're, in your marriage, you have an opportunity to prefigure the father and the son's relationship. The son's love for his own bride, giving even his life that she might be presentable to God. And so, single people, you ought to be able to look at a Christian, married, a Christian marriage. And when married people, uh, you get to, when you get to know married people, you're actually getting to know the beauty of Christ's love for His church and the church for Christ. That's what that marriage should be teaching you as a single person. That's why you should desire marriage, that you might participate in the love that Jesus has for His church more fully. This is what marriage is supposed to do. And married people, you're supposed to be with other married people that you might learn how to evocatively present the love of Jesus for His church better and better in your own marriage. There are many blessings in marriage. Companionship. Physical delight. But the greatest experience of marriage is that sanctification in showing forth the church of Jesus Christ, Christ's own love for His bride. Husbands, that's what you are to show your wife, Christ's love for his bride. And in doing so, you have an opportunity to offer a marriage to the church that is beautiful even to single people and is held highly by other married people. The roles within marriage are there because God's placed them that he might sanctify husband and sanctify wife, thereby making them presentable to himself. That's what marriage does. Those are the roles within marriage. 
Might Jesus receive glory in our marriages? Let's uh, go to him in prayer as we close. Our Father, thank you very much for sending to us a wonderful husband. Married people and single people have this husband in faith. Jesus, thank you for being that perfect husband, for loving us, taking us as your bride, even in our filth, beautifying us, refusing to leave us, suffering day in, day out, minute by minute in your incarnational life that this bride would be well cared for for all eternity. And Holy Spirit, thank you for brightening our eyes that we would see this in Scripture, how the church is called to be in a vibrant relationship in, uh, among the work of the Trinity for her salvation. Spirit, apply this knowledge to us that it would transform our hearts and guide our will as we walk from this place. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Son. Thank you, Holy Spirit. Amen.